I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Just to put it in context, we've already seen Christ appear on the scene, and he has just called his disciples, some of his disciples at least, and uh, Peter, James, uh, John, and Andrew, to follow him, and he will make them fishers of men. And he has himself begun to preach, and now he is entering the synagogue there in Capernaum, and he's beginning to teach, and we'll see some other amazing things that he does. Let's look now to God's Word. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. Now many of you will uh, probably be familiar with Timothy Leary, who was a psychologist who became famous in the 60s because he promoted the use of psychedelic drugs. He had a number of famous sayings. Uh, one of which was, think for yourself and question authority. Now, many of you will be thinking that it is strange that a preacher would be quoting Timothy Leary in a sermon. Uh, but this quote really sums up the root idea of modern mankind. The supreme authority in your life is you. You are judge and jury over every other supposed authority that there might be in the world. You are captain of your own soul. Now this idea may have become popular in the 1960s, but it did not originate there. In the 18th century, European Enlightenment, that many of you probably learned about in school, thinkers insisted that the modern person must question all tradition, revelation, and external authority by subjecting them to the supreme court of his or her own reason and intuition. To sum it up in the slogan of the, of the Enlightenment, man is the measure of all things. We are our own authority. But you know, the idea did not originate there either. If we look back even further to the very beginning of our world, we find that this attitude began at the very beginning of things. 
All the way back, we find this attitude in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve stopped giving their unfeigned obedience to God when they decided to replace God with themselves. And that was the promise that Satan made to Adam and Eve. And that is what their behavior exhibited. God says, don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve said, well, I see that the fruit is good. I see that the fruit will, will, uh, is, is good for food and looks nice. And I also see that this tree will make me wise like God. I'll be like God if I eat this, this tr- of this tree. My authority trumps God's authority. And so they ate of the tree and mankind fell into sin and the world became a broken place. Today I want to speak to you about authority. What is authority? Now the simplest answer to that question is that it is the right and ability to control, command, or determine the proper responses of others. And it has two aspects, the right and ability. Authority involves the right or legitimate claim to lead or rule in some sphere. For example, a police officer has the right, the authority, to arrest a criminal. A police officer does not have the right to tell you what car to buy. But he has a certain right and ability or power in the proper sphere. So second, that's the second thing, authority includes ability or power to exercise the claim. So there's legitimacy or right and ability or power. Now in the passage before us today, Mark is underlining Jesus' authority. In fact, throughout the book of Mark, this is a theme that he stresses repeatedly. From the very beginning sentence of the book to the very end, Mark is showing us that Jesus is the divine king. He's the Messiah, it says in the very first verse, and he's the son of God who has authority over every sphere of life. We've already seen him call the disciples. He calls one set of brothers and he says, uh, follow me. And they leave their nets. They leave their occupation. So what they're saying is that God and the Lord Jesus Christ has authority over my career choice. I'm no longer going to be a fisherman, which probably many generations in that family had been. And I am leaving that behind to be a follower of Christ. And then he comes to the next set of brothers. And Mark notes for us that they were fishermen as well. They left their nets and they left their family. They left their father there with the nets. So Jesus has authority even over your family and the choices that you make there. So we've already seen that happen. And now we see that he has authority as a teacher. And this is the first time that Jesus' authority is mentioned. Here in verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. The scribes would read the, the Bible and say, thus says the Lord. But Jesus didn't say, thus says the Lord. He just said it because he is the Lord. He had the authority. He had the ability. Did he have the right? And that's why they say he speaks like someone or as one with authority. Where does he get this authority? They were not sure he had the right, but they were astonished because he certainly had the ability. When he says that they were amazed or astonished at his teaching, the word literally means uh, to expel by a blow or to 
drive out, to cast off, to be struck. So what, if we wanted to put it in modern language, they were blown away. They were knocked out by his teaching. They'd never heard anything like it. Now then Jesus takes it to another level. This man shows up in the synagogue and he's demon possessed. And the demon says in verse 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now that phrase there in verse 24, what have you to do with us? It's a little tricky to translate. And if you have a different version of the Bible, it'll either say something like, what business do we have with each other? What have we to do with you? What have you to do with us? What do you want with us? In other words, what this demon is saying is, look, Jesus, you're not wanted here, and this is our business. Stay out of it. And Jesus responds in a very brief way. He says, shut up and get out. And that's exactly what happens. I mean, the, the translators put it very nicely. You know, he says, uh, be quiet and uh, come out of him. But, you know, let's put it in real terms. Jesus said, shut up and get out. And that's all he had to say. Now, in the Old Testament, there, we don't have any records of, uh, of, of the demons being expelled. Uh, and there's no incantation or uh, ritual that Jesus goes through. He shows his power by just saying, be quiet and get out. He's got that kind of power. The kind of power that created the world. Let there be light. And there was. Devil, get out. And he does. That's some authority. That's some power that he has. Verse 27 says, they were all amazed. I bet they were. That's a similar word to how they were astonished at his teaching, but there's a bit of fear involved in this amazement, this astonishment. I mean, this is so much power that they're very uneasy with Jesus, and that's what they're thinking. What is this, this authority that Jesus has? Now, the next scene that we see shows Jesus has authority not only over the spiritual realm, but also over the physical realm as well. Verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. He came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So not just spiritual things, but physical things as well God has. And we're going to see even more of that. Mark is adding arguments for Jesus' authority, just one on top of the other. We have already seen that he has authority over career choices, over family relations. He has authority as a teacher. In verse in chapter two, we'll see he has authority over the Sabbath, authority to forgive sins. In chapter three, once again, he'll have authority over unclean spirits. Chapter four, he has authority over the mystery of the kingdom of God. Over in chapter four, he has uh, authority over nature. He stills the sea. He walks on the water. Uh, He curses a fig tree. He's uh, got authority over the law in chapter 7 and even authority over the temple in chapter 11. And I'm sure I've left some out. But you see there that Mark is, is really stressing this point. Jesus has all authority over every sphere of life. Now modern people, like we are in the West especially, we struggle with this idea of authority. 
of Jesus' absolute authority. Because we don't have monarchs anymore. We're a democratic society. And because we have abolished monarchy in our political lives, we have carried that over into all the spheres of life. Our democratic institutions hammer into us the need for individual rights. But see, Christ must be received as a ruler. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's his identity. He is the supreme king, the divine king, the son of God, the king of kings. And Mark is demonstrating that to us over and over. Jesus' primary identity from verse 1 on is the son of God, the Messiah. And he must be received as such because that's fundamentally who he is. Now, this probably makes every one of us here a little nervous because we are all born with and taught to be skeptical of authority. I mean, in school we're taught not just to accept the status quo, not just to accept uh, things at face value, but, but to be critical thinkers, to challenge and to think through things. Question authority, that slogan that we talked about earlier, was the slogan of a generation disillusioned by, by what they saw as the abuses of those in power. I mean, there was a steady stream of foreign policy failures, presidential scandals, corporate abuses. It left the entire generation skeptical of authority. So that now, the word authority for many people is synonymous with the word tyranny. There is no essential difference between the exercise of authority and responsibility for others in a repressive boot pressed across the neck of the people. That's the attitude many people have to authority in our day and time. Lord Acton in the late 1800s was a historian and moralist, and he said this famous quote that you've probably heard before, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. So yes, we are skeptical of authority. That makes us skeptical of Jesus' authority. So much so that when we do come to Christ, we are almost always coming to him looking for someone to help us, to love us, but not to rule over us. Let me just say that again. Because of our skepticism at authority, we want Christ to help us, to love us, but we are very reticent for him to rule over us. But you know, deep down, we need a king. In fact, you have a king, something. You may not be a monarch on a throne, but something is ruling your life. C.S. Lewis said this, where we are forbidden to honor a king, we honor billionaires, athletes, or film stars instead. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. Isn't that not true? I mean, America may not have a monarch, a royalty, but we have royalty. They're professional athletes and movie stars. And we give them all kinds of money. I often wondered when I lived in England, you know, why do these people like the queen so much? I mean, she's a nice lady, yeah. 
But the royals are all fouled up people. And they do the craziest stuff. And yet they give them all kinds of money and privilege. Why do they do that? It was a mindset that I, it was foreign to me coming from America. But then I looked at America and I said, how are we different? We give people millions of dollars to throw a ball around and to have the privilege of watching that. We give million dollars, millions of dollars to people to, who make movies, who tell stories on the, on the screen. It's strange. But that's what Lewis is talking about. Where we are forbidden to honor a king, we honor billionaires, athletes, or film stars instead. He says spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food and it will gobble poison. That's a great point. I was watching a documentary on the USS Indianapolis that was sunk in the Philippine Sea during World War II. No one knew that the, or the Navy did not know that the ship had been sunk, so these men were drifting out in the ocean for five nights and four days without any supplies in shark-infested waters. And it, it, the program is very difficult to watch because it was just horrific to imagine what these men went through. And some of them, because they did not have any uh, water, uh, they drank the water, the, the seawater, which is very bad to do because it ultimately leads you to start uh, having hallucinations and you go crazy if you drink salt water. And uh, they were trying to keep people from doing that, but some just could not stand it. And that's what C.S. Lewis says. You know, if you are forbidden food, you will eat poison. And that's what they did. And some of them went crazy and they killed one another before the, they could be rescued. It was very sad to think about that. But it's a, it's a picture of, uh, of this idea of an absolute ruler in our lives. We will have something rule over us. And if we deny the true king, we will gobble a poisonous king. We will have something harmful rule us. Bob Dylan in his Christian phase in the 80s sang a song that said, you got to serve somebody. I changed the lyrics to say, you're going to serve somebody. You can't get away from it. Something causes you to get up every day of your life. There's something controlling why you do the things you do. Always. It's human nature. You can't get away from it. So when Lord Acton said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely, great men are almost always bad men, I would modify that as well. Great men are always bad men. Normal people are bad men. Everybody's bad. You know, we are looking at this presidential campaign, and, and you've heard so many people said, and maybe you thought yourself, you know, we've got two bad choices. I don't want to comment on any, anything political. But, you know, we want somebody that's qualified to rule and to lead. And uh, that people are crying out about that. It's the same in your life. You know, you are not qualified to be king of your life. You might argue that you have the right to be king of your life or queen of your life, but you do not have the power to rule your life. You don't have control of, of hardly anything in your life. You need a king outside of yourself. And where Lord Acton's statement 
when we apply that to Jesus and who he was, it doesn't apply. Power does not corrupt him. He does have absolute power, but he is not absolutely corrupted because there's nothing corrupt about Jesus at all. He is the perfect, sinless Son of God. Jesus is different. This enables us to see in Jesus' ministry of exorcism, you know, when he casts the demons out, when his rule is expressed in the world, what happens? Are people oppressed? I bet that demon-possessed man didn't think that. When Jesus came to rule his life, when his rule, his, his, his authority was expressed in that man's life, he got freedom. He got release from slavery. He traded a, a, a demon for a wonderful Savior. And it's true of us as well. Jesus is not an absolute tyrant. He's an absolute loving, heavenly Savior. As Paul tells us in Philippians, that he was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus took his absolute power, the right he had to rule, the power he had to rule, he laid that aside or actually used that so that he could come to earth and save us. To use his power and his authority and his position for our good. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we confess that he is that wonderful, uh, highly exalted king? Because of what he's done for us in laying down his life. We have nothing to fear when we come to Christ and give him control of our lives. There's nothing to fear. There is no skepticism to have because he's a gracious, loving king. He's the king that we were created to serve. I hope that you all will come to Christ and make him Lord and king of your lives. Turn from sin and put your trust, your life in his hands. As Archbishop R.C. Trench says, the only true freedom is the freedom in God. To depart from Him is not to throw off the yoke, but to exchange a light yoke for a heavy one. And one gracious master for a thousand tyrannous lords. I love that quote. To throw God to the side is not to better yourself, but it's to change a gracious master for a thousand tyrannous lords. Jesus said, come to me. Uh, take my yoke upon, me, upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to the Lord. Let's pray to him. Father, we thank you that you have provided a way for us to, to become citizens of your kingdom, to be your 
subjects, your servants, your children even. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to use our brains to think for ourselves logically about this thing and to come to you and to give you the right to, to rule and reign in our lives. Lord, forgive us for our desire to put other things in your place or to be our own God. And help us, Lord, to submit to you in loving obedience and to find in that true freedom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.